0: Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we're talking about the insurrection in the nation's capital and whose national security is being protected. One thing's for sure, it ain't people of color's lives that this country cares about. Here to talk about it all are two outstanding veterans who have strong opinions about what has been taking place in our nation over the past couple of weeks. First, we have Arthi Walker-Pedicotla, a trustee of Oak Park Village in Illinois, director of engineering for a non-profit tech company, a first-generation Indian American, U.S. Army veteran, community organizer, law student, and microbiologist. That is a whole lot of outstanding. Arthi advocates for racial justice and reimagining community safety with Freedom to Thrive Oak Park and Vets for the People, a project of the Working Families Party. In addition to co-founding Freedom to Thrive Oak Park, Arthi is the co-founder of Activate Oak Park, a PAC with a mission to elect progressive candidates to local office in Oak Park, Illinois. And finally, we have Shanyat Chaudhary, a former congressional candidate in the New York 5th Congressional District. He's an educator, organizer, and Marine Corps veteran from South Jamaica, Queens. As an international relations graduate student at New York University, Sean is an advocate for immigrant and human rights for the international community. All right, everybody. So listen, (laughs) tell me, I just need to do a, a mental health check. Um, how are y'all feeling about everything? So Arthi, I just want to start with you.
1: I mean, I feel like I'm barely holding it together. I just got off a call with my team and, and said the same, like, I'm, I don't know how we're all working through this. I don't know, like this idea of like being productive. I had one of my teammates tell me like, I don't know if I'm being productive enough. And I'm like, we're going through an insurrection and a coup. I don't think it matters right now. <laughs> like I think us surviving this moment is is the most important thing. And for me I you know, I don't know how I'm doing. When people ask me how I'm doing, I'm like I don't I don't know. I on any given day, I just don't know.
0: Here's the thing, I think we are expected this country is so capitalistic in nature and it real it this whole situation where we had a group of white supremacists who literally tried to overthrow the government. And capitalism just tells us, fuck it, keep on going. You got to make me money. You know, that's how I'm feeling about it. What, what are your thoughts, Sean?
2: Yeah. You know, when I think about everything that has happened uh, from 2020 and even with the continuation of it, of uh, everything that's going on now, it's just, it's hard to really take a moment and really sit, sit back, reflect, and think about what had just happened, right? Because we're we're so stuck in this work lifestyle American society where it's all about making money. No matter how much the world is burning down to the ground, we have to work even during this pandemic, right? A lot of, we see a lot of businesses like these folks, they have no choice but to continue on working because they need to make money. People need to make rent. People need to buy food, put food on the table. So it, it's so hard to just really sit back and really think about how much of this has really traumatized us. Um, you know, even with how I'm feeling with what just had happened uh, recently in, in on the Capitol. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane, right? Um, I have these up and down feelings. I have mixed feelings um, where I just find a lot of irony in it to be honest, and I'm sure we'll get into that more, but it's just really hard to really, uh, really embrace the moment. Just this country, man, it's something else.
0: (laughs) We're going to get right into the fact that so many vets participated in this attempted coup. It's not clear how many veterans showed up at this attempted coup, but the latest reporting and arrests that are taking place reveal that it was a whole bunch of them. Okay. (laughs) So we, I want y'all to talk about patriotism, right? So how is it that somebody who is sworn to take an oath to protect this country all of a sudden decides that I'm going to fucking overthrow it? I mean, have you actually run into these people in your during your service years? Just just tell us about that. So I'll start with you, Arthi.
1: I mean, I I can say that in my service years, I was very. Naive like i'll just say that i'm not, I was not the person that I am now, so if I look back at my time in service, I am quite certain that I probably served with people that. Supported that would you know support trump today I served from 2000 to 2006 so i'm quite certain that I likely worked with people that support trump um, and you know support the insurrection and, and everything that's happening. Um, and it's not a surprise we've known and the military, the department of defense has known that white nationalism is a growing problem in the military. This is not an unknown problem. Um, and people of color in the military have told their superiors this, right? We, we talk about racism in the military all the time. I will tell you that when I served in the military and, I, and when I was the target of racist, um incidences i didn't understand it at the time as racism i didn't understand like the little microaggressions that we constantly take as racism but it indeed was and in talking to my therapist now it's like oh man, yeah, that was racism that was trauma this i if we just focus on this idea of patriotism the definition of patriotism that i think a lot of when i when i focus on like abolitionist spaces Um, which I'm a part of in organizing spaces, our definition of patriotism is the constant challenge so that we fight for the justice of all people. Whereas the definition of patriotism of white nationalism is the protection of white supremacy and white ideals. So the patriotism that they're talking about is completely different than the patriotism I signed up for when I decided to serve. You know, and, and it's a completely different set of American ideals. It's not the same.
0: Sean.
2: Yeah. You know, I think Arti was uh, pretty spot on for everything she just said. Um, you know, we essentially are the real patriots here. You know, we are, no matter what marginalization we're facing, we are still fighting for the betterment of our communities and, and our people every day. You know, uh, when we look at Georgia as a great example, we have black led organizers black female organizers come out and you know they don't get the credit but they came out to to not just save georgia but the country right and and change the direction of this country uh so those are the true patriots right and this this myth of this white you know of this white identity crisis that a lot of white people are facing um it's just it's a, it's a structural, but it's also a systemic uh, problem uh, that's been really synonymous, right, with when we look at a lot of the folks who are recruiting veterans, um, you know, they really use it as a way to symbolize that there's uh, there's a, a sense of being patriotic within white supremacy, right? And and, and I think that um, something about it, I don't know what it is, obviously, but something about it is attracting uh, those folks to, to this group, so um it's tragic
0: you know when I think about it, it, it it's I think about why people of color serve and I had Pam on the show the other week and she just talked about this experience of being you know the the uh the child of immigrant parents and it's uh her her what part of her reason for Joining was it's a gateway to the middle class, right because you we all you come from this experience where okay you struggle and you want to be that kid that provides a decent you know have a decent check and be able to uh purchase a home and have kids and just live a middle class life and the military is one of the gateways to do it particularly for people of color, and I also think about my parents so both of my parents were served in the army. My mother served 23 years, right? And my father served five. My mother served in they, she has all types of fucked up issues dealing with sexual assault, the whole nine yards, like all types of shit. And she served in the first Iraq war. You just think about all the stuff that they endure or my mother endured. She told me stuff like when she was in Iraq, she said that it wasn't the bullets that were the only thing that you worried about. It was the fucking sandstorms. You know, (laughs) like she would just tell me stories about running away from sandstorms. And she told me a lot of things, but the whole part of it was she did all of that so she could provide a better life for me. And when they talk about country, it's none of this bullshit that these fucking white supremacists are talking about. I feel like they're just bitching and moaning and having a fucking fit that their fucking um, Trump, you know, their daddy didn't win the election. Like that's the shit that's on their mind. Like their, their complaints are privileges. They're white people's problems. They're racist white people's problems. My mom was trying to leave the hood. Okay, like that—that that was her thing, and so she—she's worried about, okay, my my neighborhoods are screwed up. All of these structural things, uh, that come from racist urban planning was one of the things that drove her into the military in the first place, right? And so now she is serving in her ideal of, and I wouldn't. Even, she didn't even, even talk about patriotism. She just wanted a good job. If we just want to keep it a buck. And she just happened to serve more time, right? And my father was the same thing. He did this not five years; he actually did four years, and he was out. And so he has the lifetime benefits and everything. He ha- he wanted a sense of security, right? That's the whole. That's the whole irony of all this. When you talk to people of color vets, everybody I talk to that's a person of color who serves in the military wants lifetime security. That's
1: that's it. That's it. And I mean, that's the reason I served, even though like. Like my background is my family is, uh, they moved here, they're immigrated here from India, my parents, um, and they're fairly well-to-do. My father's a college professor and my mother's a doctor, but there was child abuse growing up in the house and the military was the only way that I felt like I could escape that very, very traumatic you know, childhood. And you know, they were, I, I, I remember going into the recruiter's office and they were like, okay, we'll give you $6,000 to, you know, um, join for six years, sign a six-year contract. And, um, you know, you'll become like in the medical court, you'll, you'll go into the medical court. And so I became a histotech, Um, and I ended up having a child at 21 because, you know, when you're, when you grow up with child abuse and domestic violence, you know nothing about what is right and wrong in a relationship and you know healthy or unhealthy. Um, and the military, like I got out because I didn't wanna lose my daughter because I was gonna be PCS probably to a hardship station. Um, but the military paved the way for me to find security later on in life. It paid for my college, the house that I now own Um, has been paid for by the VA loan, um, or, you know, subsidized by the VA loan. Like it is, it's literally what we offer in the military, the military and what the military offers people, right? The healthcare, the housing, the, this is what should be offered to people without you know, the requisite of military service. Those benefits, the military is socialized, offers socialized healthcare, offers social benefits that we should be offering to every single American, no questions asked. But we do this because we want a poor people's draft or an abused people to draft, or a people that are living in very dangerous situations and need to get out of them draft. Like that is most of the people of color that I know that joined the military did so for the very same reason that they just needed to escape whatever situation they were in. And, you know, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic because then we are exposed to more trauma as a result of our service. So not only do we have the trauma of our childhood, we also have the trauma of our service.
2: Yeah, you know, with all that being said beautifully, um, we see time and time again. It, if you look at the numbers, right? People of color being recruited at high rates every year. It's it's increasing, and for 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 us, it's been our escape. You know, it's been our escape from everything that we're dealing with here at home. Uh, that's been my reason. But then when you're actually in it and you see just how cruel and unjust this whole system is, um, there's a reason why we're not part of, you know, QAnon and all these far-right groups, because we have a better understanding (laughs) of what's right and what's wrong. Um, And from my personal experience, you know, I've seen a lot of people that I've served with, um, you know, going in, a lot of them were, you know, left-leaning folks, they're pretty liberal, um, or even just quiet people, people you would never expect to be Uh, Adherent Trump supporters, and I've seen them grow over time uh, to, you know, be a part of this group. I've seen them on social media, unfortunately, uh, you know, with all these crazy conspiracy theories about how the election was stolen and and whatnot, Uh, but a lot of it has to do with their identity, you know, when white, poor white people, and I think about the aftermath of the Baking's rebellion, right, when the, the planters, what they wanted, what they saw was that how the how um, you know the poor blacks and poor whites were coming together? They they saw the solidified power there, but they wanted to really break that through a, a race a race struggle, right? And that's what far right groups are doing when they're vetting uh, white people uh, to join their groups. They're they're ensuing this uh, the, the need to protect their identity to protect America and for a lot of these poor white folks they see their their sense of identity within what America was right when th- when Trump talks about making America great again you know we they, they think about all these times when white people were the ones that had power unfortunately you know um, now,
1: I'll just like Sean I'll I'm, I I want to jump in and say it's not just poor white people a lot of the people that went to the insurrection last week, the event of last week, or whatever we want to call it. They are CEOs, they are people that own businesses, they are lawyers, they are everywhere. These white nationalists and white supremacists are in literally every single aspect and fabric of our society. They teach our students, um, you know, they're, they're everywhere. And so we can, this, this myth And I'm so sick of it, especially being in the Midwest of like, the Midwest is just like poor white people. That's that it's just a freaking myth at this point. Like, no, these are this is white professionals that went to the insurrection, that funded the insurrection last week. And so we we need to stop talking about it as if it's just poor like this economic crisis that J.D. Vance and the whole hillbilly elegy nonsense. And no, this is not about just economic crisis. This is literally about white nationalism and white supremacy.
0: No, no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I just think it's just wild that people, the thing about the patriotism angle that really pisses me off is that Patriotism is that word that white people can do whatever the fuck they want with it. That's ultimately what it is, right? They, it's 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 an interchangeable word based on how they feel. It's not an obligation. It's about their feelings, right? Patriot is not is not about service. It's not about caring about improving this country. The type of work that the Black Lives Matter activists do every single day, and the organizers in Georgia that are making sure that people have the right to fucking vote. And and, and what's really crazy about it is that when you talk about security, the shit that these folks really ought to be caring about with security, like with our capacity to have a free and fair election, the people who are really dismantling uh, our national security are Republicans. Okay? (laughs) They are the ones that are dismantling our security. So when you think about the Secretary of State, Stacey Abrams, said recently that the georgia secretary of state and the governor brian kemp they are the biggest perpetuators perpetuate, you know they're they're the people who perpetuate voter disenfranchisement what we see is that there's no insurrection towards them as long as they are ensuring that people of color do not vote then these people who are in washington don't care and In Georgia, I covered that election. It's not just black people that Stacey Abrams was reaching out to in 2018. And these activists um, have been reaching out to in this previous election. Georgia is genuinely this melting pot of diversity. You have a whole, all kinds of people that are there. You have people, you know, you have immigrants from, from various countries in the world. You have people coming from South America. I saw Stacey Abrams with my own two eyes talked to a whole bunch of immigrant communities. She wanted everybody to feel like they're a part of the process. I remember also when uh, th- there was a, a, a protest at the Capitol and uh, I forgot what year it was. It was in Georgia. And just a whole bunch of races coming there. And she said, if I were governor, I would tell all of my staff that they could go home because they do not need to be subjected to that type of abuse. And that's the thing about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not just, it's it, it focuses and centers black people, but it doesn't save just black people. <laughs> it brings in everybody else, right? So I wanna move on to the next subject where the House of Representatives introduced and passed a single article of impeachment against President Donald Trump on the charge of inciting insurrection and now it is up to the Senate to conduct the trial which will very likely begin after Trump has left office January 20th and yes a former president can be impeached the main thing is that if the Senate finds him guilty Trump would be barred from running for elected office and could lose his six-figure pension and other post presidential perks according to CNN so how is it to be a veteran or to be a an active service person knowing that the president who is the commander-in-chief tried to overthrow the country because you know you're basically soldiers under the president's command how do you serve under those circumstances
1: i mean i think that's that is a really good question and i actually don't know if I have an answer to that. I think the only thing that I can relate to is like how I felt serving under George Bush, who I thought was an illegitimate president. Okay. Um, I joined when Clinton was still in office. So I was like, you know, young and I'm like, we're, we're not at war. Didn't know that indeed we were, we had military deployed in a whole bunch of different places. And I didn't, I was like, we're, we're it's going to be fine. It'll be six easy years in and out. We're done. Right. And then Bush became president at, you know, through a Supreme court process that I don't, I I think was a complete sham. Um, And then he started not just this war in Afghanistan, but this war in Iraq, which I didn't agree with. And so I think what you do and for what a lot of people of color are doing and and have always done in the military is they're just gonna survive their way through. Um, I think, that's what we've always done in life is we've just survived our way through just so like, all right, keep your eye on the prize, get that 20 and go out, get that, you know, finish this contract and go out, figure out how to, how to, you know, get these little, you know, benchmarks that we need to meet. And then we're going to be done. Then we're going to, you know, hang up the uniform. But I, I also think that It is brave people like, you know, some of the veteran organizers I know that have been conscientious objectors that will really raise the alarms of serving in this time. And I was not, I had no idea about that process of being a conscientious objector, but I think those people are incredibly brave to say like, hey, no, I'm not serving right now because it is, this is not a legitimate president. This is not, you know, a time, you know, to serve. I think The thing I fear, though, is when Biden takes office, you know, I want him to hold people accountable. Biden does not seem to want to be want to do that. um, Because I don't think you can have unity without accountability. I also think we have to be really careful. And I I don't know if we're going to talk about this later. But I think we have to be really careful about Biden expanding the military state and expanding the surveillance state um, because I think he is going to be doing that. And so I worry about all of those things.
2: Yeah, Um, you know, when I enlisted, uh, President Barack Obama was in office and it was during a, a a withdrawal period. So I served between 2011, 2017 and this one, I didn't deploy because most of the troops were being sent back home and you know, I was young and naive, so I thought, "Oh wow, this is you know, this is great. We're going to peacetime. But little did I know at the time that uh, Joe Biden, actually at the time, he was the one that encouraged President Obama to, uh, you know, go along with drone strikes, uh, find other ways of counterterrorism with CIA coups, right, which are still going on with even under Trump's presidency. So um, these are some of my concerns today. Uh, one of the first things Biden's going to have to do is make swift decisions on what to do internationally, countries like Yemen, Afghanistan, like, it's 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 a big responsibility, and, and I hope that he lives up to his promises to ending forever wars, to um, ending the war in Yemen, right? It, it's it's a lot to handle.
0: I mean, but talk about Yemen, though, because here's the thing, right? No one knows what the fuck is going on in Yemen, right? I mean, like, fucking Saudi Arabia is just bombing those motherfuckers to fucking death, and it's... And it's just such a one-sided situation. I mean, you know, America sells arms to you know to 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 Saudi Arabia, and we don't understand the Middle East. That's the thing, right? And so when you think about the the the, the military, uh, the expansion of the military, Arthur, I'm not optimistic at all that Biden is going to do anything that would scale down the military. I recently spoke with. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who is definitely one of the most progressive, I would say, arguably, the most progressive uh, uh, voice in the House of Representatives, at least. And I would argue, perhaps, even in the wider Congress when it comes to scaling back the military and pursuing a nuclear free world. And you both know that she called for a 10% cut in the Pentagon budget. And a lot of people don't know, Pentagon hasn't passed a fucking audit. <laughs> okay, I mean they 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 waste money like a fucking sieve, and in addition to that, America has this really nasty habit of picking and choosing who's an enemy and who isn't, right? Who is an adversary and who is not and in one breath, America can say, Iran is a hey, as Bush said, is on the axis of evil, right. But at the same time the uh saudi arabia which produced uh many of the people who participated in the 9-11 attacks they aren't the enemy right so i'm not optimistic because america is too devoted to neoliberalism
1: i'm not optimistic either biden is just not, I, I bit my tongue and voted for Biden. <laughs> like, I, that was not my choice of who I wanted to be president. Hell, would you know? I, like, no, <laughs> uh, Biden is the absolute worst when it comes to policing and militarism. Biden wanted an expansion of the Patriot Act. He is the one that put the crime bill that has incarcerated millions of people, right? his policies have harmed not just black, brown, and Muslim people in America, but black, brown, and Muslim people overseas. So Biden is absolutely awful when it comes to these issues. So I do, and, and so yes, I know people are like, well, Trump is getting out of office and Biden, so yay, and we don't have to worry about anything. And I'm like, no, we have to worry. Like, I am not just terrified of the expansion, the potential expansion of the military under Biden, because Biden has—I I don't think he's ever not voted for a, an expanded NDAA. I mean, when we think about like how much money we've spent, and I and I, you know, said this figure in a in another conversation, we've spent over 6.4 trillion dollars in the post-9/11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Middle East. 6.4 trillion dollars. And then I compare that as a local elected official, I compare that to police spending. So in my municipality of just over 50,000 people, we spend $25 million on policing a year. And that, I think, um, equates to like $72,000 a day on policing, just on policing for a town of 50,000 people. The United States, um, there have been studies showing that the United States local governments across the United States combined, we spend over $115 billion on policing. So we have spent like the $6 trillion on post 9-11 wars and we spend billions of dollars over here, hundreds of billions of dollars over here on policing. And Biden absolutely wants an expansion of both of those things. Because what he's calling for, this community policing model that Obama loved and Biden loves, actually deeply entrenched police in our communities. They deeply increase the surveillance of black and brown people in our communities and they do not stop crime just like increasing the military budget won't stop white nationalism, right? So I am so terrified of Biden being in office and what the ramifications of that will be on the military and the police budgets and all the policies that come out of that. And I think we as veterans who have served in the post-9-11 wars, we need to be speaking out on that. Like every veteran needs to be speaking out on that because we've seen how those policies have not worked. We, we, we're still in these wars. So we have seen how these policies have not worked and we need to speak out against it. And I'm hoping that there's enough progressives and Barbara Lee is, yes, you're right, one of the most amazing ones, but I'm hoping there are more like her that will try and put a stop um, to these, these discretionary spending bills um and the policing and the militarism those
2: yeah my my biggest fear is that it's going to be so difficult for a lot of conscientious people to really want to continue the 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 fight for liberation because the <laughs> the you know we have all these white supremacists who are in the mainstream media and we're going to be continuously talking about them so no one's going to be focusing on what biden's doing and that's my biggest fear is that biden and the administration are going to get they're going to get away with a lot of things behind the scenes right so um that's that's my biggest worry because a lot of you know there's a connection between policing internationally policing at the border and policing or and policing in our own communities uh if we can't tack if we can't we can't just tackle one institutional policing without addressing it as a whole right because all of it is based on uh on a system where only the the systemic beneficiaries are able to not just economically benefit off the backs of poor of, of you know black and brown people but also um that's just how they keep power right so when you look at the military industrial complex um you know a lot of these weapon manufacturers they can't continue to make money if there's no wars, right? If we, if we can't, if we look at the US border, right? The borders are in, are being lined up uh, with, you know, with the CBP and, and ICE and, you know, catching up families and tearing families apart, um, then the, the government has no way of, you know, they don't, they, they don't benefit from any of it, right? Put the prison industrial complex, they don't benefit from any, if, if people are not in prison, they don't benefit off of that. So I think that we need to address everything as a whole, not just just in one aspect.
0: I think when we talk about military spending and police spending, a lot of Americans have a very perverse desire for force and the prospect of using violence. And... I believe where that where it comes from is due to the fact that we have this tradition of guns in our in in our society and i think it's not just white people of all stripes i think that people of color in many respects have bought into this crap too and i see plenty of black people who want police now here's the thing i understand the policing element for example when you have politicians who, when they're conf- when when they are um, presenting how to deal with the problem, I think most politicians are lazy. Let me just start right there, right? As somebody who interviews politicians, I think most of them are incredibly lazy. Let me break down why that is and how that dives dovetails into our conversation about policing and military. So one. And both of you with Sean you you run for public office and Arthur you are an elected official. So this is very pertinent to to the both of you Fundamentally speaking More policing Doesn't equal safe doesn't equal more safety more military doesn't mean That a foreign adversary is not gonna fuck with you and it deals with the central point that you can never be 110 percent secure But for some reason people believe that they have a gun on them then that's going to make them safe right or if we have more police on the street who have the capacity to shoot someone that's going to make them feel safe and you're going to think oh the more cops are out there the more that people are not going to be committing crimes listen i live in new york city where we have thousands of cops and you run over them they're on the streets like fucking roaches And we have a crime spree out here. And it's not because there aren't any fucking cops out there. I think it's a lot of things because of housing insecurity and food insecurity. It comes from that, right? And I'm saying this as somebody who grew up in the trap, you know. And, like, I understand what it means to be in a house where both my my uncles are selling drugs and be in a neighborhood where people are, are, are selling dope as a part of their life. And I always say that drug dealing is a very minimum wage job. If people felt like they could do something else, they would. Okay. <laughs> you know, let's just start there. Right. And so I think that when, but, but I think a main thing with Democrats too, because I think just Republicans, they just don't give a fuck. Um, Democrats are afraid of, of being tagged as soft on crime or being weak in general. Right. And I know you all remember uh, that Republicans regularly referred to Obama as weak. I think that there are some race there. there it, it's very the way that they described it was very racist in nature. But the idea is we're going to ping Democrats by being weak and Democrats fall for that shit. OK, and Demo- Democrats are so lazy in their response that they allowed republicans to define them too often and we saw in this previous election where a lot of elected officials particularly in these swing districts blame defund the police for their struggles or their losses and i'm like uh, you just didn't run a good fucking campaign okay you know what i'm saying just admit that you lost and start blaming other people who live thousands of miles away from you for the fact that you failed as a candidate i mean that's ultimately what it is like generally speaking candidates lose elections right just generally that tends to be the case you know i, I think that's where it comes from but um arty i'm curious with you uh just I, i'm interested in how you define safety because as a veteran you bring a lot of experience to the local level about safety and security you're more qualified than most to talk about that how do you psychologically explain to folks that it's not about having more cops with weapons that are more likely to harm you you know um that will make you safe well how how do you break that down to folks
1: i mean i i love that you said i just have to say this i love that you said you bring more experience than most i don't think that the white men on my board would say that because my <laughs> service is not my when, when i say you know i'm a veteran they don't give a shit like they're like oh well you're a woman and you didn't really do anything you can go overseas like that doesn't really matter to them you know this conversation around defunding the police it's it's top of mind for me right now i am the only trustee um so i wrote an op-ed early last year saying we needed to defund the police i got elected in 2019 and then Shortly after I got elected, I went to this convening of... Um,
0: By the way, before you get there, tell us what a trustee does in your town. Tell us yeah, what they, a trustee a lot of people is don't like
1: a, a trustee for the Village of Oak Park is basically like a city council person. Um, it is our city council. So we're the people that, uh, you know, determine the funding for the police, for the fire, for your sewer and water, for, you know, all of the public works and the roads and the transport, all of that fundamental stuff that a city has to do. There are other governmental bodies in Oak Park that focus on the parks and the libraries and the schools, but the trustee, the village board, is the one that does like the public works and public safety and all of that public health. Um, and so I got elected in 2019. I ran for office, not because I wanted to, I'm a massive introvert and I'm a huge nerd and I like reading and just staying at home and you know doing all of that. Um, but I didn't really see anybody that was really pushing for policies that I thought our people needed. Um, and so I, you know, joined, I ran and I ran a grassroots campaign and I won. And then shortly after I won, I, you know, became aware I had constituents telling me like, hey, we have a policing problem in Oak Park the, Um, the police are stopping more Black kids than, you know, than they should. And they're stopping us for no good reason whatsoever. And I heard it from a lot of Black youth. And so I got together um, with a group of people that, some of whom were already researching this issue and created Freedom to Thrive Oak Park. And Freedom to Thrive, honestly, we don't, none of us gets paid to do it, but it's the area in my life that brings me the most joy because what we've done is we've released We foia the hell out of our village government and released data showing that indeed, the police are racist in Oak Park. They do, they have racial profiling. 92% of the the youth that they stop are black, even though we only have a a population of 18% of black people in Oak Park. Um, And we've, you know, shown the data on like the the amount that we spend on policing year over year compared to the amount that we spent on public health and like all of these things and it's starting to change the conversation in Oak Park and then 2020 happened and George Floyd happened and this conversation of defunding the police really happened and we had already written this huge report showing we needed to divest from the police and reinvest those dollars in the community and what's happened now in Oak Park and I think is happening for municipalities across the nation, it is legislators and the local elected officials that are in those municipalities have to find the courage to say, we need to defund the police. But the words defund police, and this is top of mind for me because I have a trustee, a fellow trustee who is elected, who honestly I'm diametrically opposed with him on everything. He has proposed a referendum question on the upcoming April election the local elections to um, ask the voters, shall we defund the police in the village of Oak Park or something like that. And it is a push poll designed in my opinion to fear monger his way to winning re-election and to getting all of the sort of white people out to to vote for him because he does not give two shits about defunding the police, he doesn't wanna do it. Um, And so I think this notion of defunding the police and what we're really seeing with Democrats And what we've seen with Joe Biden from the national to the local level, people are scared because we equate policing with safety because we have given the police every single job under the sun. When we say policing, like the police are now responsible in my community for helping with the vaccination of, you know, for COVID-19. Right, like they're, they're not doing the vaccination, but they're helping like to distribute and helping to plan and all of that. They're working with public health. They are responsible um, you know, for, for delivering sometimes meals to other people when, when the COVID pandemic first hit, they were the ones that were tasked with that extra responsibility. We use the police for literally to solve every social problem in American society when they are not equipped and not trained to do that. So now the conversation needs to happen of what is it that the police in your community are doing that they shouldn't be doing. And we can we can pull the police out of doing things like traffic stops like traffic violations. These are ordinance violations. And literally, it's like you ran a stop sign. Do you really need a, a, an armed police officer doing those traffic stops? The answer is no. Do you need an armed police officer doing mental health response and mental health checks? No. Because data has shown that, especially for Black people, the police showing up during times of mental crisis results in those Black people getting shot and killed, right? So we need to stop this politics of fear and this politics of soft on crime and stop selling people this idea that the police equals safety because that's so not true. What the COVID pandemic has shown us is what safety is for our people, is a house over their heads, running water in their taps, Um, some Wi-Fi and internet so their kids can go to remote school. That's what equals safety. Not the police, and instead, what America is doing is what America has always done, which is use times of crisis to further exacerbate um, income inequality and inequality among its people. It's kicking people out of houses, it's shutting off water in people's homes because they can't pay their bills. We're doing all of the wrong things, and we're giving more money to the police and more jobs to the police.
0: Yeah, Sean. Tell me why you decided to run for office. What did you learn from that experience? And tell me about how you're going to use your experience as a vet um, you know, in, in, in the future, in your current life. And if you actually want to try again to run for office, because I'm always admire people, particularly veterans, because I think we need more veterans with, not only just veterans, but veterans with your y'all's politics, okay? because we got that crazy motherfucker in um in Texas
1: Dan Crenshaw Dan Dan yes.
0: Crenshaw yeah that yeah. Cra- that that crazy fucker I'm not talking about those type of vets I'm talking about you guys right but <laughs> but 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 yeah Dan, Dan Dan Crenshaw yeah that's his name so Sean tell me why you decided to run for office uh, elected office what did you learn from the experience and you know how does being a vet inform your views on politics and what 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 are some of the things that you think um, I, I, an elected uh, official in Congress needs to keep in mind when it comes to security and national defense?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things I've learned and my biggest inspiration was that when I enlisted, you know, I was, I was pretty much escaping poverty. And when I left that and came back home, I was still in the same destitute environment, uh, especially living in the project in South Jamaica, like nothing has changed over the years. In fact, NYCHA has lost even more funding during this time. And uh, now they want to privatize it. So I'm just seeing how, uh, especially working people of color, are just not being represented in any level of government. And you know, when we have uh, elected officials like Arthi, you know, fighting for that, it inspires a whole generation of people who wanna wanna contribute to that, right? And and I think we need more folks like that to to run for office. So um, you know, I want to continue on, on on these fights, and especially when it comes to organizing. Um, I believe that the power of the people is, is centered around organizing. I haven't stopped since pretty much election day on organizing. One of the things I'm focusing on right now is uh, working with the community board who where there's a lot of power struggle uh, between, especially uh, it's a generational from what I'm seeing at least. I don't wanna make a sweeping generalization, but from my perspective, I'm seeing that uh, there's a generational gap between our elders who want to have more policing because they believe it does bring safety, uh, they also look at police officers and anyone who holds a badge or a uniform as uh, you know something that's respectable, you know something that young people should aspire to be. But for me personally, you know, living where I come from, where I come from, I don't want young kids to enlist in the military. I don't want them to go over to other countries and be a part of military coups, you know? So I find irony, I find a little bit of irony that, uh, you know, with what ha- happened in the capital, is something that we've been doing in other countries for, for forever, basically, right? And. So, yeah, we, you know, we should stand in solidarity and, and, and defeat white nationalism here in our country. But we also need to ensure that we're not overthrowing other social democratic governments in other foreign nations when they are fighting for the people uh, in the in the name of capitalism. You know, fuck all that. Right. So right. I, I want to <laughs> ensure that I want to ensure that kids have better opportunities. If we could do it in, in the military where people could have housing, people could have health care, we could damn sure do that in, you know, in, in the world here in, in America. It, it's po- it, it's possible. So I don't want to say, I don't want to hear politicians saying it's impossible. We can't find money. They find money for the defense budget every year without a question. They find money for tax breaks for the rich without a question, right? So um, that's my biggest fight. And, and I still want to continue with that. But in terms of running for office, yeah, you know, I think that we continue to need more people like us to, you know, to speak truth to power and run for office, you know. Um, so, we'll see what happens in the future. But right now my focus is on my graduate classes, which I'll be beginning in about two weeks. So uh, that's where my head is at the moment.
0: <laughs> One of the things that I think really, um, really kind of confuses people are defense budgets, defense, like budgets of any kind they can be complicated, you know, and you really have to take time to read them. And Artie, I know you know this because you're a part of a, You're a trustee of, of, of a town and you're, you're obligated to look at budgets. Right. But when it comes to defense budgets and when you're asking people to determine what types of defense systems are necessary and those that aren't. A lot of people are not even aware of the verbiage. And that's that's the first thing and so people just assume okay you know somebody just makes a compelling argument over some weapons system that you know probably should have been retired fucking 10 years ago they're like, okay okay cuz they just don't know because a lot of people who are elected to office aren't they don't have i don't i find that a lot of them don't have a diverse mindset about how to engage these types of topics right and so i think that's part of the issue and then two When you think about defense spending or you think about the funding, the police in order for us to really get to a conversation where we can talk about divesting to investing that requires you to be creative. Okay. And that means that in this for the defense spending, for example, the main argument that I hear counter to defunding the Pentagon is the defense contractors provide jobs for my district. You're going to commonly hear that shit, right? And there's a cost of war project at Boston University, and they've done the research that shows that defense jobs do not create a sustainable economy. They just don't, right? And that's why I say you're lazy. So when you think about Amazon, for example, so and I know you know about this, uh, Sean, because they they wanted to go to um, you know uh, Queens and AOC, just a whole bunch of other people like, nah, fuck that, right? Because they don't fucking treat their um, employees right, and you know, like the you know the benefits and all that other shit, and, and conditions on the floor are all fucked up. But if you are a local politician, that's an easy sale that you can make. To your constituents i brought amazon here you know never mind how the people are treated i don't give a fuck and they just say hey i brought job and i think it's fucking lazy and and, and it, what really makes me angry there are a lot of people of color politicians who do this shit okay you know because many of us are caught up in this neoliberal framework where we feel like as long as We get in and get along like we're just we're, you know, it it goes back to the whole thing of I just want a job so I can be secure and it manifests itself in people's politics. And what I why I find it egregious is that, I you know, I really like the the mindset that you two have, because I feel like you are are engaging politics for the right reasons. You're not looking at it as a fucking cash cow or you're just leaning on it to do you know in order to sustain your life like you all could do something else okay you know <laughs> that, that that that's the you know that's that's the thing and, and and you know I feel like politicians need to be bold they need to have new ideas they need to be they need to challenge neoliberal neoliberalism they don't need to roll out the fucking red carpet for it that's what i think most elected officials do they roll out the fucking red carpet for neoliberalism and until we all decide that we are we, we can live a better future and we're going to go through the pains because it's not going to be an easy transition we're going to go through that shock and dawn that, that 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 pain those painful steps of divesting from this exploitive system to a more communal one that we're going to always have these same problems you know
1: can i just speak on that because you said so much there that i was like yes like we we need to we need to talk about that i think One of the things that one of the biggest struggles that I've had as a local elected official, and by the way, this is a part time job, I have a very full time job as the director of engineering. um, For a nonprofit tech company, and this is a part time elected position that I get paid $15,000 a year for and I donate a lot of that money away it actually goes into the Community organizing projects, I do. Um, But the hardest thing you know about fighting um, for defunding the police. Is actually dealing in my community and in the communities around me with all of honestly with other local elected officials that are black that don't want to jump on the police. And they call me out on it. They're like, well, you're not black. You don't, you do not understand these issues like we do. Like I, I, I get stopped by the police all the time, Arthur, You're telling me you don't, you know, you're t- you're calling me a fraud because you wanna defund the police and I'm not as radical as you are. And I actually had a conversation with somebody about like, look, look at the numbers in your budget and just ask yourself like, what if you flip that around? What if policing was the least amount of money that you spent in in your discretionary spending and you spent more on public health? Like what would that do for your people? And I, I I struggle with this a lot, right? I am, as a non-Black person of color who is not impacted by the very thing I am advocating to defund. I struggle, my greatest struggle is, should I even be speaking out about these things, especially since I am the only person at my table currently that is willing to do that. That is my greatest struggle. (laughs) And My where I always go back to because I'm I surround myself with organizers and um, I treat my political office as my seat is the community seat, so we co-govern together. Where I always go back to is my my organizing community, and as long as they are with me, then I can we can face these you know all of the blowback that we get together. And people are not going to agree with us. There's so many people in my community that are Black that do not agree with me on defunding the police because they have been trained and brought up to think that policing equals safety. And I cannot fault them for that.
0: Mm -hmm. But I'm happy that you had that. that's, that's, That's correct. Yeah.
1: Right. Like, I will not, though, spend my time the very limited time that I have to try and win them over because there are people that are ready to be organized right here that I need to organize because organized people win over organized money all day long. And when you organize the people, then other people come along. So that is the way I look at like my job right now. I don't have enough capacity, we're, we're capacity building. So I, in addition to starting Freedom to Thrive Oak Park, I started a pack called Activate Oak Park That is basically a a bucket of money for local Black Indigenous POC candidates to run progressive candidates to run for office. We need to start these little projects in our own community because running for local office costs money. And the very people that we want in local office, they cannot run for office. They don't have the time. They don't have the money. They don't have any of it. They don't have the knowledge. And so we need to just fund them. So yeah, like there's so much of what you just said, Terrell, that I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a problem, and and I think it's also why people lack not lack the courage, but are so afraid of speaking out on it because there's so much blowback that you get. It's not easy, as a local elected official, especially, to deal with the blowback because these are your neighbors. They your kids go to school together. You see
0: him on the street. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I wanna I wanted to add on to that by saying I def I really appreciate you being honest about that conflict of being a non-black person, you know, trying to convince black folks about this because in our communities, black politicians have pumped more police, more police, more police because they're lazy. Let me just I, I am going to say that they are fucking lazy. And that's, that's, that's one main thing, just generally, right? So, you know, because I mean, with me, the way that my politics work, you know, this this podcast is called Black Diplomats. Okay, obviously, because I want to amplify, I center black folk, but, you know, I bring on everybody in. You know, the whole thing about black diplomats is, yes, it centers black folks, but it's not all about black folks. That's, that, that was never the point. And I'm just saying that just in case people are, you know, for people who are listening, uh, I have all kinds of people on this show. And, I, and the main thing that matters to me is how many of us are seeking liberation? And you don't have to be just exclusively black to seek liberation, right? It, it, you know, I've never believed in that. And then two, liberation comes from the margins. And as a minority of people, when you think about all of the great movements that have taken place around this entire world it has never been a majority it's always been a small group of people who are brave enough and the vast majority of folks are on the sidelines and there are the people who are pushing back against you rt and saying sean you know you're too fucking radical and all this other bullshit and they're the ones that are going to be benefiting from the labor ironically (laughs) that, that, <laughs> so so, so that's the thing. So what you both are dealing with with you, arty, with the black folks, that's that's normal, right? And you know, you have black folks like um Barbara Lee who get that pushback from this very, you know, from black people as well, because they're like, okay, who's this bourgeoisie Negro telling us what the fuck to do? You know what I'm saying? Like they they throw all types of shit shit at you. And again, It it takes a very brave mind and a creative mind in order to think about the problems, the the solutions to the problems that we have. And just thinking about the term of neoliberalism and just for people who are listening and they don't understand that term, there are a lot of ways to describe it. But neoliberalism is when part of the, the, the genesis of it is when you're depending on the free market, an unregulated free market, to determine your solutions to all your problems. And so when we talk about defense spending, right? The reason why we have these defense contractors that are running amok and have, you know, elected officials, you know, by the balls or by, you know, just just have them in their pockets, basically, is because of money, right? And so when you allow money to determine that, to, to determine all of your to, to, to determine all of the solutions to your problems, then it's going to be manipulative, and then it's it's going to be an easy way to exploit people to corrupt people. Okay, you know, and so I, I think that what you all are doing is is very brave, and I just want you to know, Arthur, to keep doing what you're doing, and you're just you're you're in a minority, you know, in both ways, and and, and another thing too. And I've had to think about this as a black person because, you know, growing up in my neighborhood, I I, I had the same type of mindset that you're running into. And I had to ask, how did I get to this point? And um, I would have to think my time uh, living abroad uh, as part of it. I mean, I'm in Uzbekistan right now. And so I spent years outside of America with people and also learning language that's another thing when you're able to communicate in another language with a common person it your brain just thinks differently um and people will tell you you know your shit stinks day after day after day after day after day and if you're not hard-headed you're gonna do some self-reflection you know and if you don't do any self-reflection, you're an asshole. Okay, then that's you know then there's not much you could do about it. But 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 um, it was my time being a Peace Corps volunteer where I was living in Georgia, and people were talking about oh America does this, America does that, and you know you, and you have people remind you, and you actually read, you're like damn, you're right, you know America shit does think, and so you can be a black elected official. Or you know, and in America, say okay, Black Lives Matter. You can say that shit, but then you can go to Congress and um, vote for measures that um, enact war and violence and drone attacks on other countries. You can be that black person who says, okay, I'm I'm rah rah. You know, Black Lives Matter. You can right, and so. You could be a Black person that's deeply invested in a violent, torturous, global neoliberalism and unwittingly carry that out at home when you don't suspect it because you don't have the requisite political education to know any better. So what I try to do with my podcast and invite folks like you on is like have these open dialogues so we could talk through it, you know, and so people can listen and hopefully they'll reflect outside of this, you know, but you know, I think this is a a good way to segue to our final thoughts about what you know. I'll start with you, Sean. What are your hopes for our country? We've we've had a bunch of white supremacists try to overthrow the government, but we got a whole lot of folks that are on the ground, people like y'all that are really doing the good work. So, what are your hopes and how, what and what are your plans? To to continue to continue the liberation fight,
2: yeah, you know, actually, even segueing into this question, um, a lot of what both of y'all just said really close hit really close hit the home. Um, I I myself I challenged a black congressman, right? So I was in a position where I was running in a district, right? I, I come from a, Bengal, a Bangladeshi family. And it's a district that is fifty percent black, fifty percent is mixed with Latinos and South Asians. So it's a it's a, it's a really diverse community, uh, you know, uh, community of color. But there's a, a stronghold of neoliberalism with the established county politics, right? So when I when I ran, I got a lot of blowback, obviously, for challenging a black congressman, but. What was fascinating was how no one knows the history or how the member votes. And he's been in office for nearly 20 years now at this point, right? And he has a a horrible track record. And that's a, you know, I'll digress from that, but that's a story for another day. But, you know, it's just we have to keep on showing up, right? And I think this is my segue into this question is like how no matter who you are, right? As long as your heart and your intent, is in the right place, continue to fight for the liberation of people, right? Continue organize, continue showing up in spaces where people don't really expect you to be, you know? Um, for me, I, I do believe that we need to galvanize the people who feel like they never really had a place of calling to be organized with or, or you know, fight for something, you know, make them believe that there's something that to, to be fought for, but also do believe that we need to continue on having productive conversations with folks who will disagree with you, even if there may be no productive outcome to it, right? I do believe that the transaction of ideas is so vital for the liberation to grow, right? Uh, we may not be able to change the hearts and minds of 10 people, but if we get one person, um, you know, to be a part of the movement, that, that's successful right there. Um, so when I look at how, um, you know, when, when I look at the defunding the police uh, situation here, you know, a lot of the folks on the community board are are elder blacks, right? And and I'm a brown guy showing up. I'm like, hey, you know, fuck that. <laughs> you know, like, but the thing is like they don't see, and a lot of elected officials where I come from, they don't walk the streets, they don't live the kind of lifestyle that a lot of my neighbors and friends do. They don't see how the police have harassed them. They don't see the, you know, how many times people had just been thrown to the police cars for like just having a an ounce of marijuana, like they don't experience that, right? And one of, and I take this line, and I'm a huge J. Cole fan. So in one, one of his old songs from his mixtapes, he talks about how, how, can he, how can he really resonate with a lot of what these politicians and, and president, presidents speak and feel when they don't even walk the streets. They don't understand the life. They don't understand the experiences of these folks that live here, right? So, so I think that as long as we're fighting for the liberation, we, we have to continue on fighting for it um it's not it's going to continue right even in our lifetime we may, may we may not get everything in our lifetime right but we are so close to having things like universal health care like it's like we, we are on that path when 80 percent of the country favor medicare for all right we are on the path for having this conversation around defunding the police has become so popularized right? everything that is not that is unpopular now is going to be become such a mainstream topic now because of all the conflict and ideas behind it but people are talking about it so the fact that we're talking about it now i think that we're on the pathway for making shit happen
0: absolutely arthy
1: i mean i always go back to two things when i'm asked to like you know think about the future so and and both of them come from organizers like ancestral what i call ancestral organizers um So Grace Lee Boggs said um, that you have to transform yourself to transform the world. And I would say for a lot of people of color, especially people that have been in the military, we have endured so much trauma that until we start healing ourselves internally and transforming ourselves internally, we can't actually transform the world. So a lot of the work that I do, and I guess the reason that part of me is really introverted is I spend a lot of time just working on myself and unlearning all of the things that we are taught that are so wrong. And some part of me sometimes feels a lot of anger that we are taught all of these things that are wrong about our society and our like we're just not taught about our history. And so I spend a lot of time um, just transforming myself. Um, and then I, the other thing that I think is, like as a as a former microbiologist, I always tend to think of things in terms of like nature and what nature teaches us. And what science and nature teaches us is there's there's sometimes brilliant things that can come out of chaos. So even at our least hopeful, even at the times that like last week when we felt the pit of dread in our stomach watching our democracy almost crumble there are beautiful things that can grow out of that we just have to nurture them we have to make sure that the seeds that are planted now are planted in the right soil are nurtured you know are watered enough are are given the right nutrients so that they can grow and become the things that we need to transform our world and i think that organizers already do this. And it's really organizers that are women of color that I see as some of the most transformative leaders um, of our time, they are already doing this. So I am very hopeful, even on the days that I feel like the world is going to shit, I am very hopeful about Us being able to transform our our world because I see us starting to not accept the status quo and say fuck that no like you need to get out of office we're taking your place and we're gonna we're gonna make this shit right. Um, so I'm I find myself very hopeful these days even when it's sometimes really hard to be.
0: Absolutely, and and I'm hopeful and I'm thankful for the both of you all. And you brought up something, Arthi, that was really uh, critical, which is unlearning. And when I have conversations with my people the very black people that you both um you know engaged during your various you know uh political pursuits is um i think with black folks in particular we have been so abused in this country that anytime someone dares to challenge somebody that we respect i.e uh well respected you know, incumbent congressperson or Black folk in the community who are, you know, maybe property owners and say, well, I want to be able to call the police if someone breaks into my house, whatever the case may be, right? You know, there's so much that we are conditioned to feel about ourselves that we have to unlearn it. And so one of the things that I'm working to do is to be an an active participant. In the process of the relearning of what it means to be safe. And I believe that's my obligation. And talking to people like you and having these open, candid conversations, talking about how we feel, I think is is challenging and it may be hard for some folks to hear, but it's also actually productive because ultimately what we need to do is talk about safety and bring people along, right? And so we are the re-educators, if you will. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about how we feel. We talk about the anger and the frustration. But then as uh, an elected official, as somebody who is engaged in politics and organizing, Sean, uh, and as me, somebody like myself who understands these topics and as, as somebody in the media and who disseminates information, there's a care component that has to follow my frustration uh, to understand where people are coming from. And that's going to take a long process. But if we are a fighting for liberation from the margins, which is what we're all doing, right? Organized money, um, you know, something about that organized organized money and, you know, the organizing, the the component of of, of bringing the activists together, like that long game is what we're doing. And I want to thank y'all for joining my podcast to talk about that long game. So we all, we did the show. And uh, thank y'all.
1: Thanks, Terrell. Um, This was awesome. We got into some deep stuff. So
0: yeah, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.